live from the WLIWFM studio in Southampton, New York on Monday, August 14th, 2023. I'm Gianna Volpe. 13 Long Island school districts and 16 individual schools within them are posted on a state needs improvement list that is the first compiled since the COVID-19 pandemic prompted a suspension of such ratings more than three years ago, according to a Newsday analysis. John Hildebrand and Michael R. Ebert reporting on Newsday.com that the latest state classifications are part of a federal and state accountability system that has been revived to cover academic performance for the just-completed 2022-23 school year. Under federal rules, ratings identify schools and districts falling in the bottom 5% statewide based on student test scores, high school graduation rates, and other criteria such as absenteeism and test participation. School systems targeted by ratings span the region from Hempstead in Nassau County to Riverhead and Greenport on the East End, but are concentrated in Suffolk County. Overall, the great majority of systems in Long Island's educational network, 111 other districts and 624 other schools remain in good academic standing, according to the State Department of Education. As it resumes its scrutiny of classroom performance, New York also is providing districts statewide with billions of dollars in additional money meant to help counter learning loss from the pandemic and boost scores. Quote, accountability is a two-way street that from Education Commissioner Betty A. Rosa when she initially announced the restart of ratings in Jan- uh, July of last year. Some educators criticized the state's rating system, contending that it often stigmatized entire districts due to data covering relatively small number of students, numbers of students. In other news, turning food scraps into compost can be a messy gig. Joe Workmeister reporting on Newsdate.com that on Saturday mornings, volunteers with East Hampton Compost collect buckets of discarded vegetables, fruits, potato peels, and corn husks from local residents as part of a new collaborative pilot program to reduce food waste, create nutrient-rich soil, and educate residents on how to minimize their carbon footprints. For donated scraps can be hauled, To a nearby recycling center, volunteers use one hand to dig through each pile looking for twist ties, stickers, rubber bands, pits, pasta, or any other contaminants. They keep the other hand gloveless to take down the data. That according to program founder Gloria Frazy, quote, not only are we teaching people, the community, how to do this composting, we're also showing the town that we can deliver clean compost, she said. Approximately one-third of food produced in the country is never eaten, according to the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. The agency established a national goal in 2015 in partnership with the U.S. Department of Agriculture to have food loss and waste by 2030. Food waste is the most common material in landfills, according to the EPA. Frazy, a member of East Hampton Town's Energy and Sustainability Committee, said she's been leading a subcommittee focused on compost and food waste. The pilot program began in July and runs through September. The collaboration involves East Hampton Town and Rewild Long Island, a nonprofit that promotes sustainability practices along with other groups and local schools. Checking in with our friends on Fishers Island. For residents, a routine trip to the DMV could well be a full day's errand requiring an hour-long ferry ride followed by a nearly two-hour drive, and that's just one way. Tara Smith reporting on Newsday.com that the remote island, part of South Old Town yet closer to Connecticut than Long Island, is only accessible by ferry from New London, Connecticut, and residents have been advocating for years to bring a satellite office to their island. That effort will soon pay off as the installation of a new office gets underway with plans to provide residents' basic services such as driver's license renewal and vehicle registrations. No on-island driving tests will be provided. At the town's annual meeting on Fishers Island on August 2nd, town officials announced the office could be open as early as this winter, but will only be open for limited hours a month. Currently, Fishers Island residents who need to 
Access. Uh, DMV services have two options, travel to New London by ferry, take another ferry to Orient Point, and drive to the closest office in Riverhead, a 57-mile trip that takes around three hours and costs more than $100 each way, or drive from New London to the closest office in White Plains. Riverhead has one of four DMV offices in Suffolk County, a fifth in Port Jefferson, is slated to close later this month as the agency attempts to cut costs and shift resources. A little note about the annual meeting on Fisher's Island. Uh, undoubtedly one of the coolest uh, events uh, that I attended and places that I went as a cub reporter for the Suffolk Times was the annual meeting on Fisher's Island. And finally, the Quag Bridge on Post Lane will be closed for up to three days beginning tomorrow, while the Suffolk County Department of Public Works performs emergency repairs on the 85-year-old drawbridge that connects the mainland to Dune Road. Tom Gagola reporting on 27East.com that the bridge crosses the Quag Canal on Post Lane before terminating at Dune Road. Residents or visitors to the beach can use the Rogers Beach Bridge to the west or the Pong Quag Bridge to the east to access Dune Road while repairs are underway. The plan for now is that Quag Bridge will be closed this week, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, while DPW contractors do the work. In the meantime, the in the meantime, the county will post signs announcing the temporary closures and detours. Quag Village Mayor Robert Truehold said he would coordinate with West Hampton Beach Village Police and Fire Services to arrange for mutual assistance to ensure rapid response to any emergency that might arise. Reading the weather in Sag Harbor. As uh, we do our makeup Monday, our very first makeup Monday uh, with Lorraine Dusky, those pesky optimum issues we were having at the beginning of the summer. It was really, it was the first big weekend of the summer and there were outages and we were not able to do our uh, interview about uh, Dusky's book, Hole in My Heart. So stay tuned for that. The one and only Gail Field in the WLIWFM studio with me this morning. I very um, gratefully made the mistake, I think, of messing up when she's on. So I get to have her with me all morning here at WLIWFM. I'm Gianna Volpe. We've got the Mama edition of The Heart on uh, this morning. Very appropriately, we're going to kick it off with the Mamas and the Papas Monday, Monday. Here on Long Island's only local NPR radio station, WLI, WFM 88.3 on the FM dial throughout eastern Long Island and coastal Connecticut. 96.9 in central and western Suffolk County. Streaming online to wherever you are at WLIW.org slash radio. And thank you, thank you from the bottom of the heart of the East End to everyone who listened uh, to the live broadcast from Authors Night on Saturday night. Everyone who attended, everyone who wrote books, uh, and every one of you out there listening right now here on WLIWFM. News you can trust, music you love. Monday, Monday, so good to me. Monday morning, it was all I hoped it would be. Oh, Monday morning, Monday morning, couldn't guarantee that Monday evening you would still be here with me. Monday, Monday, can't trust that day. Monday, Monday, sometimes it just turns out that way oh monday morning you gave me no warning of what was to be oh monday monday how could you leave and not take me every other day every other day 
Mama edition, the heart of the East End, the weekday morning and midnight show featuring music from all decades and genres and interviews with folks from all walks of life, all because of you, the listener supporter of Long Island's only local NPR radio station, Waylon Jennings and Willie Nelson, Loggins and Messina, and the Scissor Sisters for J.J. Kale and Grateful Dead. But first, a little sugar pie DeSanto on WLIWFM, news you can trust, music you love. Little Sugar Pie DeSanto leading us to the bottom of the nine o'clock hour here on The Heart. That means it's time for our, our, it's usually our Medical Monday segment. Today we're doing Makeup Monday uh, because we had uh, some issues that were kind of causing trouble uh, with our uh, being able to hear our peeps 
the morning was May 25th, and we had uh, Lorraine Dusky on with us, Donna Wing Friedman, and uh, we needed to we needed a redo. So you know what? It's Mulligan Monday here on WLIWFM, and Lorraine, I want to just make sure you've got this guy close to you. All right, so we're going to start by saying between 5 and 7 million Americans are adopted. There's nothing odd nor shameful about growing up with or being raised by parents who didn't give birth to you. I want to ensure we preface this segment with author Lorraine Dusky by saying that everyone's experience, including Dusky's, is valid and worth exploring. So we thank you for allowing us that chance this morning. The book we're talking about is Whole in My Heart, Love and Loss in the Fault Lines of Adoption. But before we go ahead to talk about Hole in My Heart, do you want to briefly say a few words about Birthmark? Um, Birthmark came out and is my first memoir about giving a child up for adoption. And it was the first um, p- big book or, I mean, book that came out that with my, with a person's name on it who said I gave up a child for adoption. I mean, I actually was the first person who did that publicly, and I did it in the New York Times op-ed in 1975. And and being that, you bore the brunt of a lot of... Criticism. Feelings, Woo. anger. Yeah. Well, I think somebody coming up to you at a party in a very small kitchen in Manhattan and saying, I know some people who would like to kill you, kind of sums it up. Right. Um, I didn't take him very seriously, but the fact that he said that indicated the amount of um, furor that just coming out publicly and saying I gave up a child for adoption and it has screwed up my life and I'm very sorry I did it and, and I have never gotten over it, which is really what the book was about. And the and actually, yes, the desire to know her, and that was 1975 initially, and the book Birthmark came out in 79. So... Yeah, I would say there was a lot of um, there w- not not I would say there was a lot of anger. People came up to me at parties in the Hamptons and passed me nasty notes and walked away and stared at me. Um, I was attacked at a dinner party at uh, Craig Claiborne's house. He was a noted food writer for the New York Times at the time. By another Times um, kind of celebrity writer he was famous for doing all uh major obituaries of people like Nabokov and he would he would interview ahead of time anyway he had attract attacked me while everybody at the everybody else at the table turned to look at me Ben Gazzara the uh, I understand um pounded the table about me at another dinner party at which I was not thankfully not present so that was the that was my life for a while so and and we're going to return to talking about uh, the physical and mental long-term effects that can occur when surrendering surrendering a baby to another because it's something that you note is rarely discussed in conversations about adoption but I before we do that I, I want to touch on something that you talked about which is uh, what drove you to to out yourself as it as it was uh, considered at the time Uh, and I want to talk about the unsealed initiative and where that is in its journey today and what it was born from uh at the time that I came out of the closet uh there were shows it it was beginning to bubble up people people were beginning really to search there was an organization already founded called ELMA the Adoptees Liberty Movement Association and when I read about it in 1972 in the New York Times I I was so relieved and um because adoption at the time was closed was and can you talk about what does that mean what is a closed adoption it means that the mother is never supposed to know where the baby goes and the baby and the baby no matter if they're six 16 or 60 is is never supposed to know anything about their origins it was a cockeyed idea at the time even if they want to Oh, they, because it was the cl- birth certificate is completely rewritten, right? Completely rewritten. It says uh, apparently it says amended on it, or or you know it has some kind of word it can be stamped on the side or something. But uh, the the adoptive parents are put in as if they gave birth to the child, 
I mean, I have heard about birth certificates where they, even the place of birth was changed. Usually, I don't think the date is, but I mean, there were also a lot of um, back alley uh, adoptions at the time. There would be doctors who uh, would deliver the baby at their, let's say, at their clinic and just kind of quietly hand the baby to somebody waiting in the parking lot and a, a, whole, a different birth certificate would be written. And there uh, are there are children who don't have the curiosity or say they don't have the curiosity or uh, there is a small, you say, a small uh, minority of parents who say, I don't ever want uh, my child to find me. But that's something that you mentioned is is sort of like um, an outlier that was used to protect uh, closed adoption. Talk about that a little bit. Closed adoption really got started in the 40s and 50s when a person in Georgia named when a person in the South named Georgia Tan uh, was actually um, kind of stealing babies or tricking poor mothers, and then she would sell them to movie stars like June Allison and uh, Governor Lehman of New York and um, other celebrities uh, like Mommy Dearest or Joan Crawford. And it was much more um, convenient and clean to have the birth certificate sealed. So she was a big proponent of this, and not only proponent, but she pushed it a lot. States, until the 30s, uh, all the states pretty much had open adoption. I mean, it wasn't, things weren't sealed. And then it became an idea to like, let's make sure that the bastardization of these babies, when it was, you know, that they were called bastards, I mean, in, in a sense that, that's what the word means. Um, let's just clean it up and just pretend that they were not adopted and they will go on with their lives. What, what the people who did that, and that there were a lot of legislators. Governor Lehman is the one in New York who pushed the bill along with the adoptive father who was mayor of the city of New York at the time. Uh, they, and if they, things got through legislator after legislator, except in Kansas and Alabama and Alaska. And... Um, they, which had never sealed their states, never sealed their records. So it one state after another did this, and it became it just became the common practice. But they didn't realize that these adopted people were going to grow up and have questions. I mean, yes, there are some adoptees who say, "I'd never want to know," and you know, whatever. But whether or not they want to know isn't isn't the issue. Why should the state decide for an adult person who can join the this, this armed services, get married, get divorced, kill people, go to jail, get out of jail, whatever, but they can't, you're being told you can't find out where you came from? I mean, what gave the state to take that right away? It really smacks of the old, of slavery to do that to a person without the person ever having anything to say about it. So let's talk about adoption language. The intro to Hole in My Heart, including, uh, you know, deals almost entirely with terms like relinquish, uh, surrender, phrases like making an adoption plan, all uh, down I, to the etymology behind terms for mothers. I'm always fascinated by semantics. So if you could talk a little bit about, especially for you, how old were you again when when this I was, occurred? I was 22. I had just I was a year out of just about a year out of college uh, when I um, became pregnant, and uh, and it was a different time, also. Oh, Talk it was a, a little... very different time. I mean, it was just total scandal. I mean, it, everybody talks about the 60s as if it were this great free love sex thing, you know. Well. I didn't even know the basically didn't know the pill existed when I got pregnant. And uh, so it was out there. And sex education was like virtually non-existent. Right. What sex education from my Catholic mother Mm -hmm. who assumed that I was going to be virginal until I was married, who didn't want me, who... who, And it's it's tough because (laughs) even though that's what the mothers wanted, there was no conversations many times around it at all. So how how would you know? Zero. (laughs) zero conversation with my mother about sex. I mean, she assumed I knew, well, actually she knew that I knew about sex because I I asked her a question about it when I was 
uh, 12 or 13, and she was rather horrified that my cousin had told me something that how it occurred. Uh, but I, you know, they, it, no conversation it was, existed. It seemed very reactive. And then it was <laughs> it was basically we deal with it then. And there was a it was an immense amount of pressure uh, for you, especially in the circumstances where you were not married and and the father was, in fact, yes, uh, for you to quote unquote do the right thing and the right by, th- by give- giving your your child away. So you're right. So let's talk about the physical and mental long term effects. Well, you, let's get back to one one thing. I mean, even birth mother today is controversial among some groups of people because it was started to not offend. That word was coined by an adoptive mother. A long time ago, um, a writer, and it became something to try to ameliorate the sense of the the role of the mother who actually has the baby right. instead of natural mother, which is what we were called initially. So then it became birth mother. So now there is this, a movement that it has gained, gained some traction in some in some conference some conferences. You can't even use the phrase. However, I just have decided. I would prefer to call myself a natural mother, but I use birth mother because it is the term that everybody seems to know, and it's and the media. And if I mean, I have a blog called First Mother Forum, which I I simply uh, came up with the title so it would be somewhat alliterative and easier to remember. But I had to change my name name, even though the URL hasn't changed, to add birth mother to the title that you can see. Mm-hmm. So newbie mothers like myself who want information or want to find a community they're not going to know that they have to call themselves something other than a birth mother so that you know so i just i added it and let it go i just i don't get upset with in fact i sometimes prefer to be called biological mother because that says to me that the person has not been schooled in the proper language Mm. it just is what comes to mind all right so let's let's talk we're going to return to talk about um your experience, Dusky, and it's something that you note is rarely discussed in conversations about adoption. I, I want to talk about grief uh, with a focus on those who have uh, had close adoptions like you and give it some perspective with something my own mother sent along to me the other day. Uh, and, and, I, and, and I don't uh, proclaim to know about the science behind this. This is something that was just sent to me, you know, like a chain text, uh, but it seems like There's something to it. Uh, It goes, when pregnant, the cells of the baby migrate into the mother's bloodstream and then circle back into the baby. It's called uh, fetal maternal uh, microchimerism. For 41 weeks, the cells circulate, or however long you're gestating, uh, the cells circulate and merge backwards and forwards. And after the baby is born, many of these cells stay in the mother's body leaving a permanent imprint in the mother's tissues, bones, brain, and skin, and often stay there for decades. Every single child the mother has afterwards will leave a similar imprint on her body too. Even if a pregnancy doesn't go to full term or if you have an abortion, these cells still migrate into your bloodstream. Research has shown that if a mother's heart is injured, fetal cells will rush to the site of the injury and change into different types of cells that specialize in mending the heart. The baby helps repair the mother while the mother builds the baby. Studies have also shown cells from a fetus in a mother's brain 18 years after she gave birth. If you're a mom, you know how you can intuitively feel your child even when they're not there. Well, now there is scientific proof that moms carry them for years and years even after they have given birth to them. Is this the type of thing that you were really prepared for, Dusky, when this was uh, <sighs> sort of thrust upon you? Listen, I knew it was going to be bad. I mean, I really did. I, I'm, And listening to that is just, you know, bringing me to tears right now. Um, I'm so sorry. That's okay. I mean, <sighs> I cry a lot anyway. Um, so I, I always... I did not anticipate it was going to be easy, and I was in fact um, hysterical after my baby was born because even though I could, I knew it had to be what what was going to happen that way. I mean, when I woke up and she was gone, I just 
kind of collapsed um, and had to be held down and given a shot that put me to put me out. I don't know what it was. Um, and I woke up in in another room. I was in the uh, in the uh, recovery room, uh, sobbing uh, uncontrollably. And um, so, so I, it isn't like I was surprised. Right. Um, and when I read that piece in the New York Times about adoptees wanting to know who their parents were, and it was headed by. Um, an adopted w- woman named Florence Fisher, who was who a heroine of the movement, um, who decided her life was going to change when she was in a doctor's office after an accident, and they uh, she had to fill out a medical history. Well, she has no medical history. Basically, she has nothing other than she you know she knows from the time she was born, and that's why she started this movement. And that be, has are you talking about the Unsealed Initiative? Yeah. Well, okay. yeah. So, but so, I mean, it was because based on grief and based on a a need to know, they need to know, and mothers basically not all of them, uh, especially the ones who who really closed up their hearts and their minds and and I mean mothers like myself were often told you have to think of your child as dead I mean I have a friend who was told that by a Catholic priest um, so um, meanwhile uh, I mean mm-hmm. it's not a, a singular event it correct? is correct is adoption is not a, something in the past tense I gave away a child and she is, continues to be a part of my life today, even though she is no longer with right. us. And for the adopted person, they are adopted. They not. It wasn't that they were adopted. Yes, they were adopted, but it's a continual part of their life. Now, you were in some ways uh, one of the lucky ones because you were able to find your daughter mm-hmm. and very much uh, have her a part of your life. She worked uh, at the ice cream shop uh, on of Sack Harper's Long War for a couple of summers. Um, I mean, I did find her when she was 15. At that point, I uh, I hired a uh, searcher who was able to find her. But I found out later that he already, he or she, I mean, I paid you my never, Yeah, you never found out, right? No. I paid my money to a third person who gave it to another person. Who, who already said, knew who you were and had already found your child based on reading birthmark, right? Yes. And all that I had in birthmark was the place and the date and the sex. Unbelievable. Because I know, that would, they were my favorite character in the whole book because I was like, oh, my gosh, what a what a noir character. Today, DNA has changed a lot of this, however, because uh, even though there still are there still are most states still have closed records or they have records. Really? Yes. These t- today, There's only uh, today. I, I think the number is 15 states that have completely open records. Many states have done this half, half, blank way of opening the records, by, by giving the mother the opportunity to redact her name, which it could not be. It's so wrong. It is not equal. It is not equal because. I have always known who I am. Most mm. adoptive parents, unless they're adopted themselves, have always known who they are. But to tell the, the state to make this rule, like, well, the, we promised these women uh, anonymity. Actually, the state never promised the women anonymity. It was a byproduct of what happened. What they really did is just change the records. They didn't say to the mother, there, there, dear girl, go ahead and have another life and you'll never remember this. People might have said that, but legally it was those laws were never passed to protect the natural mother they were prote- they were designed to make the the adoptive family seem like it the, this person wasn't adopted but they they paid no attention to the fact of what they were doing to the, the to the adopted people so the adopted person must have the absolute right to have to access their birth certificate as soon as they're you know I don't know and, and I think in Alaska is 14 and in Kansas has never sealed their records and Kansas does not have a, an uptick in abortion or something like that because that always becomes like oh well you know we can't open the records because there'll be fewer abortions for that me, is for baloney me, for me it comes down to information as a journalist mm. uh for example, in your own daughter's story, uh, she would have really benefited uh, from more uh, uh, information about uh, her medical history, for example. Do you want to talk about that well, element? 
Yeah. See, um, I thought I was pregnant before uh, it showed up on the those pregnancy, the pregnancy test in 1965 when I went to the doctor. So I had the test. I went to the doctor, and it came back negative. So he and he so he put me on the birth control pill, and I was uh, felt like oh my God, you know I, you know, missed a, a bullet. But indeed, I was pregnant. But because my periods had always been irregular, I was. If you're really thin, you sometimes don't have your ballet dancers don't have their periods along for a lot of time, and so it didn't see. I had. I was irregular also. I mean, I hate to be this biological, but that is what really what happened. And so I didn't know I was pregnant until I couldn't really not accept it. And that was at that point I was over four months pregnant. So for for. A long for several periods when the fetus is so uh, vulnerable, I was taking birth control pills. When I went back to the doctor, he he right away said, you know, and I didn't go back until after Christmas, and she was born in April. So, uh, but, and they are not sure if that it ha- was the yeah. connection, but ah, even new still, res- and when you think of uh, it, like it's it's almost like not that it doesn't matter, but I'm just saying, uh, I I feel like kids would benefit from having their medical history yes uh, absolutely and I'm, i mean given what, to them what i where i was get going in this case my daughter had epilepsy right and they did not uh, really uh, appear until she was five but they do know now and and since i actually wrote the first edition of the book and this edition of the book there's more information oh. now about um uh, the fact that the lack of B6 in a developing fetus seems to cause seizures. And they often for, if, if if I had not had, if she had been born today, she would probably have been given huge amounts of B6 at the time that she was born. And, or I I mean, you know. Knowing the, the history of. of yeah, because see the hormones in, in birth, birth control. control pills in 1965-66 were f- three to five times stronger than they are today. And they leach B- B6 out of the body. So there we, there we go. So there's really a connection. Yes, absolutely. I just, I don't want to say definitively, you know, thus, you know, being ever the journalist, but it's also there absolutely is, the case and something that you look at uh, because you too are a journalist. And and this right. is the thing. I, I really appreciated your thoughtfully sharing your story. You know, you gave a, up a child under immense pressure from a society that scarcely educated women on how to avoid being coming pregnant, as we talked about, and, and shamed single women who sought to keep their their children. You reported through the rise of contraceptives and the uh, legalization of abortion, and now you're watching the pendulum swing uh, toward restricting women's rights to abortion. As someone who has watched as well as experienced all of this, what do you think? that woman at the paper who read palms and predicted adoption uh, for you might see if she looked into that of our country. I don't know. I mean, what she, she actually didn't predict adoption as no, much as she said that I would that, never, I would never have a child or right. no. And I would have a child. This is a, and there was something wrong. Yes. That's all she said. Yeah. And I thought, well, that's really bizarre. I might have been pregnant at the time. I, I mean, because I, I don't know exactly when she said that, but I might have already been pregnant. What she would say today, I don't know. I mean, I, I am appalled that, that, that the state can, that many states want to take away the right for women to control their bodies. I mean, I uh, can't uh, get my head around it except that I see it happening. It w- I think but because it w- um, the abortion rights win, wins in every state no matter how they put it on the ballot as they just did in ohio right. i mean they did, it wasn't abortion per se but it made it easier for them to put that an, a lack of abortion into the state constitution and the vote was very definitive however if you i looked at the map of the state of ohio and it's the columbus and uh, cincinnati it's all the cities at akron it's a, the the big vote came from those cities, and I, I in this many of the the, the uh, cities that have big schools, the vote is something like ninety eight percent for not changing the constitution to make it harder to to, uh, to put in this abortion restriction. Lorraine, is there anything that we didn't talk about that you want to make sure that 
listeners know or that we do discuss about birthmark, about hole in my heart, and and about your daughter. I, you know, we didn't even touch on gun violence, which is how, you know, your daughter was ultimately lost, and that is a separate but equally well, important topic. Well, we can't leave it like that because it sounds like she was shot by somebody else. I no. mean, adoptees have a higher uh, rate of suicide at something like four to one, or at least they know for sure that the adopted And also of relinqu- relinquishing a child themselves, right? Adoption begets adoption. Yes, there is one statistic that shows that adopted uh, women are seven times more likely than the regular population. You know, I don't know. It just seems like you know when 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 my daughter did it. I mean, I was devastated because I thought, how does she not understand the experience that I have gone through that she is now foisting on herself? And the adopted person. I mean, she. when I found her, she had already told her adoptive mother that she wanted to find me and her adoptive mother was going to help me, help her find me when she turned 18. I would, it probably would have been very hard unless they also got in touch with a searcher who might have, he might have had a harder time finding me, but that searcher at that time seemed to be able to find both both sides of the equation mm. in a we, and nobody I don't know how he did it but he did it she they, he or she did it they, yeah and uh, so uh, where I you know I think I lost my train of thought here I mean so she she was one of the people who did all of the things that I kind of have devoted my life to to telling people that giving up a child for adoption is one of the worst things you can do in your life to today adoption Workers try to make it seem like it's, oh, you're making a family. And I mean, I, there's. Well, at least this was your experience, right? You know, there are so many pages on Facebook that talk about the, that speak to the grief of other mothers who give up children. And they, they get talked into it by the agencies who say, oh, well, it's going to be open. It's going to be great. I mean, Talk to the women whose the adoptive parents close the can close. They have the right to close the adoption in a certain way. They can't change. and and so it can happen after the fact. If they don't change their name, but they can move away. They can leave no forwarding address. They can right. be in another state that makes it hard for a, a, most most. I'd say a great many mothers do not have a lot of finances to travel from New York to Seattle because that's right. where the child was where they end up. So they they and they are supposed to uh, send pictures. I mean, I know someone who gets who got pictures of the back of her son's head because yeah. that technically fulfills the the contract or what what, what they yeah. So I, if I, if this is if anyone out there is listening considering giving giving up a child for adoption, I would say go to Facebook and read you know not well read not only Hole in My Heart but read the, from the women who have done it recently who who say I didn't have any idea what I would feel like this so empty mm-hmm. so so lost so forlorn. Makeup Monday underwritten by Jennifer Benton. That was Lorraine Dusky. Uh, the author of not only Birthmark, but Hole in My Heart, uh, Love and Loss in the Fault Lines of Adoption. I'm Gianna Volpe. This is Waylon Jennings and Willie Nelson. And you, whoever you are out there, you are awesome. And you're listening to Long Island's only local NPR radio station, WLIWFM, news you can trust, music you love. Cowboys ain't easy to love and they're harder to hold. They'd rather give you a song than diamonds or gold. Long star belt buckles and old faded Levi's and each night begins a new day. If you don't understand him, he don't die young. He'll probably just ride away. your babies grow up to be cowboys Don't let them pick guitars or drive them old trucks Let them be doctors and lawyers and such Mamas, don't let your babies grow up to be cowboys Cause they never stay home and they're always alone 
Because your mama don't dance and your daddy don't rock and roll. Your mama don't dance and your daddy don't rock and roll. When evening rolls around and it's time to go to town, where do you go? To rock and roll. Where do you go? To rock and roll. Where do you go? To rock and roll.
Just wearing black.